This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We are leaving our time now. We are leaving our time now. There are places where time moves more slowly than here. We honor all four directions, east, west, north, south. And we also honor the fifth direction, the vertical one, which is in us today, here. Once upon a time, there was a king and a queen, and they lived in a castle, and near the castle, there was a forest. You know, there's always a forest near the castle. And this forest was like other forests, with one exception. When anyone went into it, he didn't come back. Five hunters went out, and they didn't come back. Ten hunters were sent after them, and they didn't come back. Then twenty hunters went out, and they did not come back. And then thirty hunters were sent after them, and they did not come back. And pretty soon, no one went to that part of the forest anymore. Only occasionally, a hawk or an eagle flew over it. That identifies this as a male story. Hawk and the eagle are male birds. That was the situation. That's the way it lasted for many years. Finally, one day, a young man came, and he said, anything dangerous to do around here? <laughs> and the king said, yes, it is. But uh, I don't recommend it because the return rate is not good. 
And the young man said, that's the sort of thing I like. I think I'll go. So he went, taking only his dog with him. Maybe the fact that he didn't go in a group was a part of it. He took only his dog with him, and he walked into the forest, and he walked a long way into the forest, and all of a sudden, a hand came up out of the pond and pulled the dog down. And he didn't get hysterical. He just said, this must be the place. <laughs> Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path, or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. This is the third and final episode in a series that pays tribute to the poet, teacher, and activist Robert Bly, who passed away on November 21st of this year. That was Robert you heard at the top of the podcast from the excellent film A Gathering of Men, with journalist Bill Moyers. You can find the full video on the Medicine Path YouTube channel. Now, in this episode, I speak with his old friend and colleague, John Lee, who worked alongside Robert for many years, leading men's groups around the U.S. John is an early pioneer in the men's movement and has worked for over 30 years teaching workshops on recovery, emotional intelligence, anger management, and emotional regression. John has been featured on Oprah, 2020, Barbara Walters, The View, CNN, PBS, and NPR. He has been interviewed by Newsweek, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and dozens of other national and international magazines and radio talk shows. Personally, John's work has helped me better understand some of my own emotional issues, and his down-to-earth wisdom continues to help me in my relationships to my wife, family, friends, and clients. In our conversation, John shares some deeply personal stories about his time with Robert, from the first time he met him as a young therapist in the 1980s, up until Robert's gradual decline into dementia. Now please, pull up a chair to the fire and join us as we share some laughs and shed a few tears, remembering the man John is proud to call his mentor, colleague, and friend, Robert Bly, here on The Medicine Path. I'm here with John Lee, and uh, John, as we were chatting before we started recording, uh, my intention with this little series of podcasts is to speak with people who knew Robert Bly uh, personally, to give listeners a sense of the man behind that great body of work. And uh, as we were chatting, 
you know, there's been a lot of work done looking at uh, his impact in poetry and mythology and the men's work. Um, but, you know, until I started talking to uh, Martin Shaw and Michael Mead, I didn't have such a sense of who he was as a person and the kind of impact he had on the people he gathered around him. So uh, I know you worked with him really closely and you knew him well and considered him a friend. So I'm really honored and grateful to have you here on the podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Yeah, I wonder... Especially on this topic. Yeah. I wonder if you wouldn't mind starting just by telling us about how and when and where you met Robert for the first time. Okay, I'd be delighted. It's a great memory. Um, In 1980, someone gave me an article or an interview. I think it was in the Sun magazine, but and uh, Robert talked about a witch turning uh, sons into swans and how they flew away. And I read that and I thought, wow, I'm a swan boy, mm. but I don't want to call it swan boy. And so I came up with the word, the flying boy, uh, and wrote that first book, which again, was totally inspired by Robert. But before I did, Brian, um, I was working on my doctorate here in uh, at UT in Austin. And um, the subject was men's issues, masculine psychology. And of course, Robert Bly was going to fit into that thing. And uh, right about that time, there was a big uh, conference, Jungian conference, uh, north of here. And my dissertation director got me a scholarship to go to that because I had no money. And and a Jungian conference, even back in the uh, 80s, was pretty expensive. So I got a scholarship. And long story short, they seated me at the table. Uh, with Robert to my left. Hmm. And so he did a reading and uh, I was so blown away that a scholarship guy, you know, when I got there, I kept asking the people, where do I sit? And they kept saying up front, up front. And I couldn't figure out what they meant. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful reading he did. And then he sat down beside me and we talked during the whole dinner. And, and that was my a first student encounter with him, and that would have been in 1981 or 82. Uh, but then uh, first time we worked together was in 1991. Um, uh, Michael Mead, as you know, and James Hillman had been teaching with him for some years uh, at men's conferences. And uh, they brought me and Martine Prechtel and Maladoma Somme uh, and others, um, you know, to this conference. Can't remember the city outside of San Francisco that the, that conference was. I'll think of it in a minute. But that that was my first sort of live encounter uh, with him. Um, 
sort of as a colleague and, and a public speaker. Um, so mm-hmm. um, that was the professional part. Yeah. So in those intervening years between that first meeting at the conference and we got the call, um, were you guys in contact with each other? Yeah. Yeah. Um, We, you know, there was a a conference in Los Angeles that about 20 or 25 so-called men's movement people were invited to to kind of figure out where the men's work should go or not go. And Robert and I got put in the same cabin because the host knew that Robin, Robert and I were working together. And so that's really where we became friends, I'm happy to say, was that time, that weekend, sharing the cabin with him. Um, you know, God, that was so long ago. But um, so we were walking one day after dinner, and he said the most marvelous thing to me. He said, um, John, I want you to tell me what I'm doing wrong at the men's conferences. What am I doing wrong with men? And I was just totally blown away because at that moment, I realized he wasn't talking to a student anymore. He wasn't talking to somebody who was a fan. And and so I said, well, if you really want to know, I'll tell you. (laughs) And I did. And I thought, now, if he's willing to do that on a peer level, I need to ask him the same question. What am I doing wrong with men? And that conversation sort of began. And then the next thing he said, now, John, just a minute. He said, I know you wrote The Flying Boy, but haven't you sent me your following two or three books for an endorsement? And I said, yeah, Robert, I have. All three of my new books I've sent you. He said, did I write you an endorsement? I said, not a word, (laughs) not a word. You didn't write me a word. He said, well, I guess you're really angry at me, aren't you? And I said, no, not at all. And he was stunned because so many people in the 80s and 90s were projecting father stuff onto it. And I just simply said, but you've already changed my life in ways you won't ever comprehend. And so I don't need you to do more than that. Um, and, uh, and that's, and he looked at me and he said, you know, I, I can't believe that you're saying that. And I said, well, I wanted to make sure before I ever met you, uh, personally that I wanted to have as much of my father, son wound tended. So I wouldn't project it on you. Hmm. That you, was a great moment. Yeah. So you could already see the potential for that when you uh, first read his work and then met him. Yeah, he talked about that a lot, the the father hunger that he identified in uh, especially North American culture. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly was one that had that father wound, absent father, alcoholic father, 
And that was one of the things that kind of brought us together. He had the same similar wound. Alcoholic father, absent, raised more by his mother, me raised and enmeshed more with my mother, um, and us both being sort of a disappointment to our fathers, our biological fathers. And, and that was part of the unifying theme that, that he and I have. Hmm. You know, one of the things that um, we're seeking with that father hunger is the blessing from the father, the praising of who we turned out to be. Um, is that something that you got from Robert directly, or is it more just uh, through his work? No, no, I'm happy to say and, and honored to say that in the process of us becoming colleagues and peers and then developing a personal relationship, um, you know, I felt sort of covertly blessed by this great older man. But we had a strange relationship that I don't talk much about, but one of the things that he did, I don't know if he did this with Michael or Martin or anybody, but when we were talking personally and sometimes professionally, he would call me dad. D-A-D. <laughs> and he would say, so dad, what are we doing today? And that sort of kind of uh, funny talk is what kept us more as colleagues and friends than uh, student and teacher or, or mentee and mentor. Uh, it was just a little funny thing he would say. Maybe he said it to everybody. But, uh, you know, so there was, there was this thing of, John, what am I doing wrong? And then, Robert, what am I doing wrong? that kept us, a lot of people, and I have no problem with this, a lot of people thought he was my mentor or my father figure. Um, But, uh, and while he was in some ways, both of those because of his generosity, because of his uh, ability to bless, I did feel some of that, but that was not the main glue that kept us stuck together. Yeah, it's interesting uh, how he would kind of subvert the typical mentor-mentee relationship by asking you what he's doing wrong and and, uh, calling you dad. Uh, You know, he talked a lot about the puer spirit, the kind of eternal boy. And I think he held a lot of that energy. And so maybe that was some way of kind of subverting the whole father-son dynamic that could have been. Exactly, exactly. You know, we both recognized we were both Pueres, or in my language, and and his, I mean, he would say it too, we're both flying boys, you know. Um, And and so that that kept us almost more as friends and brothers in some ways. Um, um, But it's the early, the early times with him you know, it, it was life change. It was career change. Um, I just can't tell people how generous he was. 
what the most generous, one of the most generous people I've ever met. Hmm. You know, I was, I was talking to uh, Michael Mead about that, his uh, generosity. And, you know, from my perspective now, I don't really see a lot of people like him of his stature sharing the stage with other people um, and and kind of finding a niche for them in this circle that they're creating around them where it's not just about, it was never just about Robert Bly, but he would bring other people in, uh, unseasoned people like Martin Prechtel, you know, I think he described Martin once as like a, a wild pony running around with flowers dropping out of his mouth. <laughs> but giving uh -huh. this guy a platform, which then he could have a whole career as a teacher on for the rest of his life. And, you That's know, right. we could say that about a number of other people too. Um, That's right. He, he, he did that with the great prince that he started 40 years ago. He would bring, he brought me a couple of times to the Great Mother Conference to speak, but but same thing with the men's conferences. It, it was the most amazing thing to see him. He was so smart that part of this was his generosity, but also his uh, intelligence and emotional intelligence. So he'd bring six or seven teachers to every conference, you know, and while he was clearly the person they came to see uh, and hear. People like myself, Martine, Maladoma, Martin Shaw, uh, we got the benefit of his uh, collegial spirit and generosity to say, <laughs> uh, Martine Prechtel is a Guatemalan shaman. Uh, he's never done a, a men's conference before. And here he is. You know, Robert barely knew him or me, you know, and, and brought us in. Funny story about Martine. Um, I hope Martine is okay with this. But the very first conference in, uh, in 91 that we all did together, uh, Robert asked each of us what, what we wanted to do over the week, which was a week-long thing. And, uh, and how much time we would need. And uh, Martine answered, well, I'll need to take at least three whole days of the conference. <laughs> because once Martine gets going, he's so brilliant and eloquent. You know, he doesn't want to stop talking and nobody wants to stop listening to him. <laughs> Robert said, well, we probably can't do you just for three days. But that was a funny little conversation. What do you feel was the niche that you were filling in that circle of teachers? Well, you know, I've often said in public and personal life that he was he was really the one who articulated grief in in men uh, that needed to be dealt with, needed to be talked about, needed to have stories that addressed it. And at this time, in, in uh, like from 80, 85, uh, I got into uh, recovery, 12-step recovery from alcohol and being a son of an alcoholic. And so that particular area was not brought 
really to any of the conferences uh, before I joined in. And then the second piece was by the time I joined in in 1991, uh, I had this book published by Bantam uh, called uh, Facing the Fire, Experiencing and Expressing Anger Appropriately. So a lot of the focus was, men, you can't do this deep inner work and still get drunk or smoking dope regularly. Not that it's a judgmental thing, it's just counterproductive. And as Robert uh, talked about grief so eloquently, I wanted to bring in the other side, which is deep anger work and, and how that gets taught and, and done experientially. So, you know, I would bring people up on stage or uh, go to them out in the, the room and, and do anger work with them. Hmm. And so Robert kind of really supported that, you know, all those years. Hmm. Well, you know, I noticed as somebody who's time traveling, but going back and listening to a lot of those recordings from the men's conference and kind of seeing how it evolved as the new players came into the fold and how much Robert would absorb things from different folks like yourself or Hillman or Mead or Maladoma, you just kind of absorb little bits of it. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when you came in, the niche that I, I could kind of perceive was um, like he had a lot of people around him who were ritualists or storytellers, musicians. And then you came in with some real like boots on the ground, uh, practical wisdom and uh, exercises and practices for working through uh, anger and uh, passivity and some of the other topics that you're quite well known for now. Um, yeah. Do you see that as part of it, too, that you had this kind of real uh, down-to-earth approach and experience? Well, that, I'm happy to say that I appreciate you noticing that. And the answer is yes. I mean, there was no greater intellect and, and creative resource than Robert Block. He read everything, knew everything. Um. But, you know, we, he and I started a, an annual conference for 16 years up in Alabama where I had my cottage in the, in the Southern Appalachians. And we did that for 16 years. But a lot of the guys that came to Mendocino, that was the place where I first met them, and then Minnesota uh, were well-read, well-educated people. Um, and in Mentone, not so much. We real. I really wanted to bring men from Georgia and Tennessee. Not that people didn't come from Michigan and New York and California to Mentone, but there was this sense that, you know, <laughs> I mean, I could not compete with him intellectually. My God, you know, I'm from Alabama, you know, and so since I was doing the whole. Um, Experiential stuff that uh, let me turn this off. Oh, I'm sorry. That you know, I wanted to bring another component uh, to the storytelling, the poetry, the mythology, which I all I love. 
I mean, I ate it up with a spoon. Uh, but I also knew that I was practicing and teaching what would have been called back then body-centered psychotherapy, hmm. where the head and the intellect is sort of uh, not transcended, but but uh, eliminated in as much as possible to get down to the body, which Robert was doing in his own way and talking about in his own way. Uh, one of the funny things that happened at, uh, at Mentone especially, but maybe other places too, is some of the guys would come out during the break after Robert had been teaching, you know, and, and somebody would come up to me and said, John, I didn't understand a word Robert said. Could you give me the shorthand version? You know, he said, and, and because his intellect was just, you know, sky high. But I know for a fact, because I overheard it a couple of times, some of the academic guys and the intellectual guys were grumbling like, what is John Lee doing here and what is he talking about? You know, and again, that was the damn wisdom of Robert. You know, he would have six teachers with us in mental, assuming that none of us could quite reach everybody in the room. I mean, that's brilliant. Uh, most public speakers and writers just didn't do that. Hell, I didn't do it until I started working with Robert. You know, I would be the only one at my weekend or, or, or whatever. And then Robert showed me that, you know, so when I started Mentone, I said, well, we're just going to do the same thing he does in Minnesota. We're going to pay other teachers Martine was a big one who came uh, several years to Mentone and just blew everybody away. Hmm. And there's something about that, too, that's coming to mind about how if you've got uh, six teachers on the stage, you're in a way diffusing all of the projection that you would otherwise have to carry solo. Exactly. exactly. And yes, guys in the audience are going to be able to relate to different teachers and, and find something in that. It's uh, it's quite brilliant. Yeah. Just and again, I have a lot of colleagues, writers, friends, and they were more like me initially. Is that they wouldn't bring a whole host of folks with them, you know? Um, you know, had Robert done a let's say a weekend by himself he would have made five to ten times more money than he made by bringing six teachers where and robert was incredible about this in minnesota um he would take the same pay as somebody who had never done a day's work of men's work and was a teach was up there on the stand with, take the same pay. That was another thing I loved about him. He had no regard for money whatsoever. It just was not a factor. One time after the Mentone gathering, we were walking through these uh, woods that were connected to my house, and uh, he reached into his coat pocket and he pulled out a check and he looked at it. He said, "Oh my God." This is a check. 
I said, how much is it for? He said, $1,500. He said, but it's dated two years ago. <laughs> it just, I mean, this, this was a very common thing. You know, oh. he would put it in his pocket. He would leave it on the dresser. It just wasn't much of a factor at all. To the point that we had a, a conversation one time that uh, he said, John, uh, how much do you charge for these things? Now, this was back in uh, late 80s and early 90s when the flying boy and everything was doing really well. And I told him and I said, uh, what are you charging? And, and back then, I mean, this was after Iron John had hit the New York Times. He was charging $1,500. For like a weekend to speak at a conference or or lecture at a university or something. And I said, Robert, come on, bud. You can get five times more than that. You're 10 times more famous and well-known than I am. And he, he was dumbfounded by that. He thought... He thought $1,500 was a great fee for reading poetry or telling a story. And luckily, he finally did go up. But that was, again, a kind of a thing of like, okay, you're, I, I'm going to mentor you around. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And that your dad in, in that moment going, right. come on, son, look, you can, you're worth a lot more than that. That's right. And, and again, the privilege of doing that and, and honoring him that way and him honoring me to even listen to me. I mean, to take a walk in the woods with him or taking a canoe ride with him, driving in the car, he taught me so much just by his natural being, not his teaching self, but his just real, real nature. You know, um, that's something that comes up for me is um, I wanted to ask you about like what he would talk about when you guys were just hanging out, like on the car ride or walking in the woods. I mean, was he always going on about fairy tales and mythology or did he have other interests? Well, he he. You know, I have these stories about him that are only one one hundred of all that he would say um, that changed my life. I remember one time I called him and I said, uh, Robert, these guys from Utah wants us to come and do a weekend, just a weekend workshop together. And uh, they're going to pay us very, very well. And I told him I was in. I said yes, and that I'd call you and see if you would say yes, which I'm sure you would. And he said, well, I'll have to ask Ruth first, his wife. And I said, what are you going to ask her about? He said, I'm going to ask her what she thinks and feels. Should I go? What's her intuition? I said, but it's, it's a fucking workshop. <laughs> we do them all the time. He said, you don't, and, and I was with a woman for many years living with, he said, you don't ask Bev about these kinds of things? I said, it never occurred to me to ask about these kind of things. He said, no, I run everything by Ruth. 
I said, even whether or not you're going to do a workshop in Utah? He said, everything. He said, don't you do that? I said, it never crossed my mind. <laughs> but he did after that. Hmm. After that. What, why was that important to you to run it by well, your Because I was, I, I, was, I was so independent to the point of being counter-dependent. Um, and I'd just been so used to making decisions myself. You know, like if I was going to buy a car, I would tell Bev or later my wife Susan early on, I'm, I'm going to go look at cars today. But I wouldn't say, what do you think? <laughs> you know, is this a good time to buy a car? What do you think? You know, and and I saw in that conversation that he put so much importance, not only on Ruth, his wife, but just on the feminine knowledge and intuition that I I just hadn't done growing up as a redneck in Alabama. You don't you don't ask your wife, you know, can you buy a car? Um, and certainly not work questions. Do you think how to go to work for Tennessee Valley Association? You know, you just go apply for the job and then you come home and tell your wife you got the job. Hmm. So that was big. And he had lots and lots of things like that during these conversations. Well, one time we were driving back from a conference and we got close to Minneapolis where his home is. And he, he said, uh, pull, pull over here to this florist uh, shop. Uh, I said, what for? He said, I gotta get Ruth, his wife, some flowers. And I said, but we've only been gone three days. You're gonna bring flowers to your wife? He said, oh, yes. He said, no, I try to always bring some kind of gift uh, to my wife for her taking care of the house, taking care of the bills and, and all that. And that's what allows me to go do these kinds of things. He said, don't you get your wife a, a present before you go home? And I said, no. <laughs> This never occurred to me to be gone such a short time. And once again, he said, no, you need to, you need to start doing that. That's really interesting, I think, because, uh, of course, he's so well known for the men's work. And um, when you listen to those old recordings, you know, he's talking a lot about the feminine and the kind of archetypal mythological sense. But you don't hear a lot of this down to earth okay here's the kind of thing that you do for your wife or partner uh you know and that's right. yeah that's interesting so I, after that i mean did you start bringing absolutely home absolutely <laughs> gratitude absolutely i mean i asked susan my wife every about everything what do you think what do you feel and and what i found out through robert's guidance was uh my wife Susan of 16 years, she had a wisdom of the kind that I couldn't even come close to. And by incorporating that into my work life as well as my personal life, 
really, really had a phenomenal change, you know, in the way I was in relationship. Uh, these are the kinds of things that I owe him the world for, you know. I mean, I'd be sitting with him at, at a conference and I'd just be sitting there awestruck listening to some of those ideas. But then the rides home or the walk in the woods or the canoe ride, that's where I got the more personal stuff, uh, you know, that that just changed my life. Mm. He changed my life professionally. There's no question about that. Um, you know, I would not be sitting here talking to you. And that's one thing that I'm committed to. And I've always been committed to is whenever I go to speak at a men's thing or a conference or a clinical thing, I always, always bring him up in some form or another because I own the world. You know, I just own the world. Hmm. And how long did you guys continue to? work together i mean was there a point where it all dissolved i know the men's movement with him involved just kind of seemed to um i don't know got really kind of dispersed and i don't know if there's like an actual formal ending to it all is what i'm trying to get at but was there that with you yes 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 yeah uh we worked together about 20 years maybe 21 or mm -hmm. but somewhere in there and, um, you know, when he and Michael and James Hillman was doing these things, you know, they get audiences of a thousand people or more. Uh, because, you know, he, um, Robert was on uh, Time Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, you know, and all these new age publications. Um, and, and it was just the peak. This was around... Uh, 87, 88, 89. And like I said, by 90 or 91, it's beginning not only to fall off, but again, somehow or another, that's also when Michael and James kind of went their own way or something. And, um, and so uh, one of the things that happened was uh, he the men's movement started getting uh, caricatured in the media around 1991. I remember one time he and Robert Moore, who was this brilliant, brilliant guy, uh, Jungian, um, the three of us were sitting at a table in Michigan, and uh, we were fin finished a conference up there, and we were at a, a bed and breakfast, and we were eating breakfast, and a few tables away, there had appeared in whatever, maybe the Michigan uh, newspaper, an article about Robert Bly and men's movement stuff right there. And they, he was reading it right there at that moment. Of course, he didn't know Robert was, you know, in the room. But his wife said, uh, honey, do you think you might want to do something like that? And he said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to go out and get naked and drum around a fire. Oh, no, 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 I'll never do anything like that. And that's what I heard. 
And because at that time, I mean, uh, tool time, Tim something. Uh, had yeah, the home improvement. Tim home Allen. improvement, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and so he caricaturized it uh, on uh-huh. the scenes like it was silly and, and, and childish. But now a little known story that I don't know how many people were, were asked. Uh, he was asked to play the wise man that Tim would talk to about relationships and how to do stuff. They came. Bly? Yeah. Oh, wow. That would have been a trip. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But of course, Robert dismissed it out of hand immediately. Uh, But that guy on the other side of the fence, I can't remember what his character's name was, um, it was pretty much built around Robert's wise guy, wise man stuff, though very often it was silly and reduced to comic stuff. So by 92, 93, um, the newspapers are not following it. Um, Sam Keene and I, Sam had a book called Fire in the Belly come out in 91. My book, uh, uh, At My Father's Wedding, came out in 91. And in, by 92 and 93, there, there wouldn't be a publisher in town in New York, California, that would publish a men's book because by their criteria, it had already been done. Mm. And so uh, in Mentone, by the 14th, 15th, 16th year, now we probably stopped teaching together, I'm going to say, eight years ago. Um, and we would be lucky if we got 75 men for the weekend. And I just, I got, I would get so frustrated with that. I'd go, I'd say to the men, you know, you got to tell men that this is a cultural phenomenon of having Robert Bly teach and speak. And we got 75 guys here that barely paid the bills. Now, when we first started in Mentone, uh, that first uh, two or three years, we had 150, 200 guys coming because we were still not quite peak yet, but was getting there. And uh, I'd say, but folks, you got to understand, Robert is, is equivalent to Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and he's alive and he's right here, you know, and, and it would frustrate me not because I needed 150 or 500 people, but I just thought you guys are going to, you're going to miss this opportunity. And believe me, I've heard so many men, especially and few women say, I can't believe I didn't go when, when Robert was up and running. Yeah. I just can't believe it. I go, I know what I kept trying to tell everybody. You got to go hear him at least once in your life. Because mm. nobody's like it. Nobody. No. Nobody. <laughs> it's definitely one of a kind, that's for sure. Yeah, to say the least. You know, brilliant, flamboyant, charismatic, you know, intelligent, creative, 
and store and humor. Oh, my God. He was one of the funniest people on the planet. Mm -hmm. He spontaneously spurt out something and crack everybody in the audience up. (laughs) To blend that depth of intelligence with that depth of humor is a rare, rare thing. Yeah. And I think he uh, he helped like James Hillman find his sense of humor on stage too. You can mm-hmm. hear that mm-hmm. emerging during those conferences where uh, James started out kind of like stiff and seeming like out yeah. of his element. And then uh, you could hear Robert like calling to him from the audience and kind of egging him on. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. James starting to become more self-deprecating and uh, a little coarser with his language. And yeah, that was that's nice to hear that you could hear the influence in there. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that I love, especially teaching with them is uh, we would lovingly jab at each other. And, and, you know, he would say something and I'd come back with something and, and we both, I mean, especially him, but I had a pretty good sense of humor too. And, and the audience would just crack up, you know, because it was like I knew him so well and he knew me, we could we could poke at each other in this fun, almost sibling kind of way, you know. And uh, he might say, now, wait a minute, you've been you've been talking too much. And I'd say, me, you've talked all weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And stuff like that. Yeah, there's something about that. I think one of the reasons why, you know, out of, uh, you know, kind of all the influential writers and teachers that I've encountered in my life, there's something about him that resonates so deeply with me. And I think it's because we both come from working class roots. And that kind of... um, the taking jabs at each other and you know we say up here breaking each other's balls it's kind of like a way that working class men uh show their affection and their acceptance of one another absolutely absolutely you're right on target you know and and again that's one of the things i shared i mean my my uh parents uh my grandfather's grandmas all were farmers and sharecroppers and his dad was a farmer, um, and and so even though Robert was the supreme intellect, his roots were in the dirt farm of Minnesota, you know, um, and so he never lost that. And if you look at a lot of his poems, uh, you'll see the rural and rural in his poems uh, that that always comes forth in every book that he's ever published. Mm-hmm. And so he held on to that in a way that I did too. I mean, uh, you know, the house that we moved into in Alabama uh, after we, after my dad and my aunts and uncles stopped working in the factories of Michigan, uh, didn't have plumbing and uh, running water, you know, and and that kind of connection to, I got to go to the well and draw the water. It has a very different kind of feel to it than turning on the tap. 
and but his father was a successful farmer and had two or three farms. Hmm. Um, and Robert, you know, driving the tractor and plowing fields when he was a young man, you know, is, is right there in all his work. Mm-hmm. Did he influence you as a writer at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, that that story that I told a little bit ago about one of our first encounters at the conference for men leaders, uh, when I asked him, uh, what was I doing wrong? He said, John, you have pretty much mastered personal storytelling, which is what the Flying Boy book was and Flying Boy 2 was, is my personal odyssey and trying to figure out what happened to me in an alcoholic abusive home and that sort of stuff. And so was my third book uh, at my father's wedding. He said, you know, you, you've got this personal story that a lot of people relate to. Um, but he said, John, you're not using your intellect at all. Uh, you've been trained as an academician. You teach college. You, uh, you know, you worked on your doctorate after attaining your master's. He said, you're, you're kind of throwing that out. Uh, the baby with the bathwater. And I'm encouraging you to bring that into your future books. And and I knew he was right. Now, I've always had this uh, feeling that, especially by being with him, that I, I, I just didn't have the education I mean, when you get an education in Alabama, you don't get an education. Hmm. You know, you get pushed through, especially if you're a troublemaker like I was. They just push you through from grade to grade. So, so I had this inferiority thing that I knew I could tell my stories um, because I grew up with storytellers. Um, but I was afraid to put out the education and and the work that I've been I mean I've been reading Jung well before and Joseph Campbell well before and Freud but I wouldn't bring any of that into my writing until kind of after that conversation and, hmm. um, and I realized yeah I've got to add to the personal story uh, with the things that I've read and researched and and know about uh, the book uh, Growing Yourself Back Up, uh, Understanding Emotional Regression, is clearly, clearly a result of that conversation. Uh, very little storytelling, personal storytelling, and quite a bit of information and, and stuff about this phenomenon that I called emotional regression. So he very much did that. Plus, he and I sent poetry back and forth to each other. Hmm. He he really uh, supported me as a as a writer of poems. Um, 
And uh, I'm happy to say I, I kept um, a lot of the stuff that he would send me in rough draft and say, what do you think? Does this work? Does this not work? And I sent him, you know, my, my attempts at poetry. He would come back and say, no, no, you need to strike this line out, this line, and you need to add this. And one of my deep, great regrets is I, we did that for a while, and somehow I got really, really busy and let, and, and let that uh, slide off. But it was certainly a, a, these great moments to read this stuff in rough draft um, and him read my stuff. Uh, so big, big, big influence, mm. you know. I mean, his poetry was just, half the time I couldn't understand it because I didn't have the intellect to grasp it or the education. But some of his stuff, you know, his uh, book, uh, Loving a Woman in, in Two Worlds, uh, that came out about the time, back in the early 80s, late 80s, uh, that every poem in that I understood. And when uh, later, years later, he was my best man at, the, at my wedding, hmm. I had him read two poems from that collection that had touched me so deeply. Um, and again, you know, at that wedding, um, he was standing beside me. And when my wife came walking up the aisle with her father, I sort of swooned a little bit. Hmm. And he put his hand on my back to steady me. Hmm. And I just thought I was the luckiest man in the world to see this beautiful woman coming to marry me. But to have this man's hand on my back was just, I'll never forget it as long as I live. Hmm. Beautiful. I'll never forget a lot of stuff as long as I live. So, John, I got to ask you. So you've told us what, um, you know, what Robert thought you were missing in the kind of men's work that you're doing to expand things beyond your personal story and offer a bigger context. I got to ask you, do you remember how it went the other way? What you thought he was missing out on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could you tell us? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's a moment in my life where being asked this as a peer. So in the 80s, when Robert and James and Michael uh, were doing this, I would listen to all the recordings that they made. And a lot of the men who were coming to the men's stuff through the door of recovery would say to me sometimes, you know, I went to this thing with Robert and James and Michael. And two or three times or four times, 
there'd be something said by Robert or James that would be very shaming to the men. And you can hear it, you know. Now, this, this is a silly ex example, and it was kind of said, but I'm going to exaggerate to make a point to, to finish that part of the story. So somebody might stand up in, in 88, 89 and say to Robert, you know, I wish you were my father. or I wish I had a father like you. And Robert said, take that guy and throw him out the window. You know. And the guy didn't know, you know. Um, and so said, Robert, you and James, y'all tend to put shame out there in your talks and lectures to these guys. And some of the guys are just fine with it. But my recovery guy, whose life has been built on the foundation of shame, just, just is not feeling comfortable with it. And he said, so I, I do that? I said, yeah, you, you do. And, and James does. I, I, I really don't remember Michael doing it, but uh, yeah. So he, he said, wow, I, I didn't know that. So I said, you know, I would suggest that you try to remove that element out of your presentations. Mm -hmm. Now, by the time he and I are working together, certainly years later, this, the way I'd end that story is somebody might stand up in the audience and say, Robert, I wish... I had a father like you, or I wish you were my father. And Robert would say, come up here and sit by me. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and say, what would you like to have heard from your father? Mm. Very, very different. Now, I do not take any credit for that whatsoever. But I can say my experience at Minnesota and Mentone, that just didn't happen. Just didn't happen. Just didn't happen. See, Robert and Michael and, and uh, James, in some ways, um, was what Robert Moore would call uh, warriors. They were young. You know, Robert started this stuff when he was 65 years old, younger than I am today, you know. When you say young, you mean relatively young, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they had kind yeah. of um, back-end heavy careers. Like, yeah, yeah. well, not necessarily so much Michael, but Hillman yeah. and Bly, really, yeah. it was in their, like, uh, last third their of their peak. life. Yeah, yeah, was their peak. Yeah. And, and so, so... There was a lot of warrior energy, what Robert Moore would call warrior energy. And, and what I got to see, which is one of the greatest things, I got to see Robert move over time from warrior and trickster sort of to uh, uh, lover and king energy. Mm -hmm. and, and to see that transition over the 20 years 
was one of the greatest gifts of the whole relationship because by the by the time we stopped teaching together he was a king he was a king and in many ways because of my anger stuff uh, in those early years you know i felt like in some way robert moore's warrior who i was very much going to protect the king from from slings and arrows and and uh, bad mouthing or, or whatever it's like you know and then i guess over time i went from warrior to more lover and stuff but just to see robert moore and, and robert bly some of the other guys move through these quadrants that Robert Moore talked about was was a blessing right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that the kind of early example of him making the joke about tossing the guy out the window um, seems to me very much uh, like what Robert Moore would maybe talk about as a negative aspect of the puer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or negative grandiosity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then that movement to, all right, come on up here and tell me about it. Like, wow, that's that movement into elder energy and um, being more sensitive to where this guy's at in his life. Right now, I don't know James Hillman at all. I met him one time and I met Michael a few times. Um, and I don't know if James ever got to a, I know what you said, he got to a, a looser place, but I don't know that he, because I, I mean, once he stopped teaching with Robert, I, I've read his books, but they're all very serious and intellectual. I don't know if he ever got to the lover side before he passed, you know. Yeah, well, I think he turned his focus more to, um, you know, what soul means in the context of society yeah. and, and earth. Yeah. But that was very, very late. Uh, yeah. Started good. to get some more of the gravitas, like the flying boy coming down to earth yeah. image, yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, I, I talked to, I raised this with Martin and Michael, and uh, I thought about it since I've had those conversations in the past few weeks. But uh, it's regarding the way that Robert's life ended with uh, dementia in, in probably the last 14 or 15 years of his life. Now, people listening, he died when he was 94. So from the time he was in his late 70s to 80s, he had been... Uh, around 80, around, I'm going to say around 85 was when it became... Well, there, there was a level first that wasn't obvious. Mm -hmm. Right. He was slipping into dementia. And then there was a level after that where it was clear and he couldn't teach anymore. And, right. And then there's a level where he stopped reading and writing and took lots of naps and, you know, stuff. But the first level was, um, again, I can never remember. You know, sometimes I'll say, oh, that happened three years ago. And it turns out somebody says, no, that was 10 years ago. Right. So I don't remember. I think Robert was around 84 or 85 
And it was the last time we taught in Minnesota. And by this time, we had taught, we'd stopped teaching in Minto. And so um, by this time, he couldn't carry the teaching part of the week like he always had in previous Minnesota conferences. And so the guys who knew him well and supported him and attended these things for 30 something years, they, they were aware of that to some degree. And so they asked him uh, to just do a poetry reading. And rather than staying there the whole week, he and I went up for about two days, I think, or three, maybe at the most. But it, it was becoming, in our personal relationship, it was becoming more and more obvious that that's where he was going. So one night, that last night, uh, we get in the car. From, we stayed at a motel close to the conference. And we stopped sleeping in bunk beds <laughs> several years before, um, which he did previously all the time and i did too or Wait, out of let me guess he was the top bunk guy <laughs> yeah, that's right that's right so you know we were driving we we're probably 25 minutes from the conference site and he would ask me john what are we what are, what are we doing tonight or what am i doing tonight and i'd say robert you're gonna just do like an hour and a half at the most reading poetry tonight. And then I'll, we'll come back and I'll bring you back. And three, five minutes later, he'd say the same thing. Mm-hmm. What are we doing tonight? And, and so, you know, I just kept responding the same. You're going to do a poetry reading and then we're going to come back home and we're going to get back to the motel early. Well, well, when he got up to read, this thing called body memory or cellular memory or muscle memory, whatever you call it, he got up on that riser and he read and recited poetry like it was 1981 instead of whatever year that was. I mean, didn't miss a beat. Nobody in the audience could tell that he was slipping. Now, I could tell only because I'd been around him. And so had some of the guys who produced the conference and stuff. But the only thing he did that night was read one poem at the beginning. Uh, of his, and then he reread it again towards the end of his reading. Other than that, you could not tell any difference at all. Hmm. And once we got off stage and went, started walking to the car, I said, so how, how did you enjoy your reading tonight? He couldn't remember he'd done it. Hmm. And that's when I knew, you know, but Lord God, he was brilliant that night. Couldn't tell it at all. Something about that, right? Like, 
um, what I think of is that uh, poetry and music comes from the heart, not from the head. And the, and the body. Yeah. So if the head is slipping and forgetting things, well, the heart, I mean, those poems are still inscribed on his heart. I mean, but you think about it, you know, let's say he was 84, 85. He'd been reading, reciting poetry and stories for 60 years, 50 years. So it was so much in his body that you just couldn't couldn't tell it. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget that time. Hmm. Was that uh, hard for you to deal with as you continued to slip? And yeah, yeah, uh, it got so hard that um, that you know we talked on the phone a lot when it even when we weren't working together, and. Uh, and so that was one of the greatest blessings of my life. Which, you know, I'd just call him or he'd call me and, and uh, it wouldn't be about work or anything, you know. But um, <clears throat> so as he proceeded in that direction, our phone calls got shorter and shorter and shorter. And... Um, and so it got down to where maybe five minutes. And then finally it got to where um, I started writing him letters each month um, and telling him what I was doing, telling him what he meant to me. Ruth, his wife, would read them. He got to a place where he didn't know who was writing. And that, that, but by the time he got to that place, this was over time now. So in the beginning, it, it, there was so much grief in me that poured out. But by the time I'm writing him letters or Ruth to read, um, I'd sort of integrated, you might say, process that my dear friend, you know, was going, going. And then, you know, he would be 95 in about five days from now. Yeah, Capricorn. Yeah. 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 Um, hmm. So it was a gradual acceptance, you know. Yeah. And he's the only person that I've ever known or interacted with that had that dementia. Um, but he was he, he was just an incredible guy. And then, you know, I I wake up the day after he passed and somebody had posted on Facebook that he passed, died. And, and I, I was speechless. I had no words for about two weeks. 
people would write me and send me condolences knowing he was my friend and colleague and stuff. And, and I couldn't write back. I just read them and I just had no words for two weeks. And I had no tears for two weeks. And I knew they were going to come and I knew I'd write back to these people who were so nice. But I couldn't do it for two weeks. It, it just like even though I knew it was coming, I was still very much in shock, you know, mm. that my dear friend had passed. And uh, so finally, after about two weeks, I had a conversation with another dear friend and colleague, Pat Love, and I broke down. And then after that, I could then write back my thank yous to people. And finally, I wrote a letter to Ruth. Condolences. Hmm. How is that, how's Ruth doing? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Ruth and I were friends and, and fairly close. Um, and we would talk as Robert was descending into dementia. She and I would talk much longer than he and I would when I called. And she'd write me and I'd write and, and that sort of stuff. But those two weeks, I, I just couldn't. A, I couldn't speak to anybody, but B, I wanted to make sure that that gave Ruth all the space that something like this would need, you know, friends, family, grandchildren, you know, arrangements and stuff. Um, so I don't really know, mm-hmm. but probably she'd adapted along the way. Yeah, but God Almighty, he loved her so much, and she loved him so much. And yeah, well, you know, I'm wondering, um, did you talk to her, or maybe you could just share your own perspective on this? But is there a way to contextualize that kind of gradual decline? where it seems like, you know, the body is still there and can be quite robust, but the personality is fading. Is there a way that you got to kind of put that into a context, like a bigger context about what's going on in order to deal with that? Well, you know, you talk about the body. I mean, while Robert was uh, proceeding into dementia, he was physically very healthy. Uh, and up till a certain point, he was walking, taking walks. And he even did a couple of readings and speaking, limited speaking things as he was headed in that direction. The, the hard part for a lot of us, speaking for nobody but myself, to see one of the greatest minds of the 20th and 21st century. Um, go into that place. I have to say that I had some anger as well as grief. You know, that, and it sounds silly, but I'll say it anyway, that we could put a helicopter on Mars or that we could uh, charge $250,000 for a flight 
on Jeff Bezos' thing, but we can't fund the uh, cause and cures for dementia. That mm. just devastates lives. I, I, I always get angry about the way money is thrown at things. Uh, you know, and this is one of them. I mean, uh, dementia, especially in my generation, uh, baby boomers, you know, they should have funded it better and not let a mind like his, you know. Um, so I, I, is, I do have grief. I'll always have grief. But occasionally I allow myself the room of, God damn it, how could you let this happen to these fathers and mothers and grandfathers and poets and storytellers, mm. you know, slip into this? When, when if the research had been funded correctly, I'm probably going to need to admit all this, but, you know, just it's just not right. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Robert's the second teacher who's influenced me that uh, suffered from dementia. Who was the, the other life? It's a yoga teacher, TKV Desukachar. Uh -huh. And I did a little memorial series with some of his closest students uh, after he passed. But um, so I've reflected on this quite a bit and maybe from a, a different perspective because of who he was. And I think also who Robert was, I was thinking about this after kind of raising it spontaneously with uh, Martin, but um, I just wonder, um, you know, he was so physically robust and he had done so much work in his life and had been so much for so many people that a part of me just wonders if he didn't just want to check out and go on to that next world. He didn't want to wait for his body to give out, uh -huh. you know? And so I wonder if there's almost something kind of intentional about that withdrawing, um, especially when you're caring so much for people and there's so much expectation that, you know, as long as you're still healthy and vital, you got to be up there on stage doing That's that right. thing. That's right. And, you know, in like the yogic tradition, your last quarter or last third, depending on who's talking about it, is supposed to be this withdrawal and focus on the spiritual and prepare yourself for death. And just some part of me thinks that, you know, we're, if we're going to tell a story about dementia, uh, maybe there's a more inspiring or meaningful story that we could be telling about it, because we really have no idea what's going on inside Right. that person and right. uh, a lot of the suffering is really the people around them That's watching right. this personality yeah Ro robert was mostly happy most of the time yeah and i think about some of these treatments where they're trying to bring that person back and i wonder if they're trying to bring back a soul that's kicking and screaming to move on to the next world maybe i i i know one of my last stories to tell you um may or may not corroborate what you just said. But one of our conferences towards the end, and maybe the last that we did together, we were riding in the car, and he said, 
very seriously. He said, John, do you think I've done enough? Mm. Now, this is 84, 85, I don't know, someone. He said, maybe, maybe, don't you think I should do more men's conferences, more events? And I said, Robert, you don't have to do anything anymore. You've changed the world. You know, there's men walking in this park right now carrying their babies on their chest that's never heard of you. Mm. But you helped make that happen. You helped make fathers uh, go to their sons' ball games, recitals, uh, you know, in ways that my generation's fathers never did, your fathers never did. And I said, so you could quit any time you want and do just what you want to do because you don't have to work anymore. There's a line in one of his poems. He says, pretend that somebody tells you that you've been forgiven hmm. or that you don't, that you don't have to work anymore and that you could lie down and die. But there was this sense, it's very important. I wish I hadn't messed up the, the quoting of it. I quoted it much better, but not a long time. But I said, no, you, you, just, you just do whatever you want to do. You know. Now, I'd like to end with one story that, that uh, sums up for me who he was. Yeah, please. So we'd finished Mintal, and that was just a three-day event. But it was, you know, many years before the, the, the dementia. And we'd been working all weekend, and we stay up very late. I like to go to bed early and get up early, and he could talk all night long. So when we would finish, he would be energized. I'm an introvert, and I'd just be exhausted. But we went to this uh, restaurant up on the mountain at DeSoto State Park, where we go eat a lot of times, breakfast or dinner after these things. And we just done 100 men, and it was great and wonderful. And we went to this restaurant, we sit down, and we there was just me and him. And then there was this guy sitting back in the corner by himself. And it wasn't a guy who'd been to the gathering. It was just some guy sitting there eating by himself. And Robert said, that guy looks lonely. Do you think we should ask him to join us? Mm -hmm. And that was, a, again, one of the most moment-changing things because I realized that he meant it. Because, you know, if a waitress or a waiter came to the table in any restaurant that you're in, he wanted to know about it. He would ask them questions. So what are you doing here? Why, why are you working here? What's your goal in life, you know? 
And me as an introvert, I just want to fucking eat, <laughs> get out of there. And I saw that in him in, in stark relief. But I also saw, you know, that I was probably in my late 40s, early 50s, and that I did not have that in my life, that generosity that he was exhibiting there was still vacant from my life. And I just, I just thought, my God, this guy has changed the world. He's internationally famous. And he wants to know if that guy is too lonely. That's so did you invite the guy over? No. Because I didn't have that kind of generosity. I was tired. Mm. I was exhausted. And also, this was my last night with my friend. So I make the distinction in, in that story that just like, do I ask my wife? No. You know. But he'd been working all weekend. And, and that generosity of spirit that I hope I adopted to some degree or another later, uh, that again, again, he showed me this is a man he was. Mm. Uh, and so. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. I, I got to say, John, I think, you know, um, having gotten so much from your books and your talks over the years and then um you saying yes to coming on my little podcast for the second time now and then sharing these very personal stories of someone who's really near and dear to you i think is a very generous act and so in your own way i think uh you know i've been receiving so much from you and i know people who have uh, listened to us talk have gotten so much from it and they've reached out to me and I want to hear more from John Lee because I hear a real grounded, practical wisdom there that uh, isn't uh, maybe spotlighted as much as, um, you know, the flying boy intellectual thinkers and, you know, um, but I know I appreciate it, you know, and it's had a real, uh, a real effect on my relationship with my wife and with my family, mm. with my father, mm. working out some of those issues. So, mm. Just got to say thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. I appreciate you doing this and 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 making this gesture and offering uh, to the people who will listen to this. You know, from Michael and Martin, and, and to consider me as part of that. Again, this I can't tell you what a gift this would what is and what will be for me on the passing of a man that I love so much that, that I'm honored that you invited me and, and I appreciate what you say about my work. And again, there would be no work of mine had it not been for this generous, loving king. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks to Robert. Yeah. 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 And thank you for doing this this beautiful ceremonial thing to honor him and his life and his passing. That, that really means a lot to me that you've done that. Uh, thank you. Okay. So yeah. thank you very much. 
The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 